Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report, and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Jack Stone Truitt, Nikkei Asia business and markets reporter here in New York City. Today's episode, Pakistan's debt and divisions. Sri Lanka is not the only South Asian nation in turmoil, as Pakistan is close to defaulting on its debt. This is far from the first time the country has needed a bailout, but this time could be different. On today's show, Nikkei Asia Digital Editor Waj Khan will be speaking with Aparna Pandey and Uzair Yunus, two leading South Asia experts, to find out why Pakistan keeps finding itself in need of cash, and what's different this time around. We'll also hear from Waj directly about what's at stake and his big scoop on Pakistan's desperate appeals to Washington to get out of this mess. Plus, in our Tokyo Dispatch, we'll hear from our Taiwanese correspondents about their brilliant and massive story revealing the fatal flaws in the semiconductor supply chain. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. A reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Get three months of our award-winning coverage for just $9. To redeem, just click the link in the episode description. Things aren't going well for Pakistan right now. The Islamic Republic, which is home to 221 million people, is on the verge of economic default, with its rupee crashing and its foreign reserves dwindling as it seeks a bailout loan from the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. The situation is generating more than a few comparisons to its South Asian neighbor, Sri Lanka, where the economic crisis there has led to a state of emergency and its president to flee. But Pakistan, the fifth biggest country in the world, which is effectively ruled by the world's sixth largest military, is in Sri Lanka. It's also been here many times over. In fact, it's taken out IMF loans 22 times before, even as recently as 2019. In 2022, however, it's not just Pakistan that's in need of economic relief. Inflation is running rampant across the globe. Just this week, I reported on the IMF's pessimistic update to its global economic outlook, which noted that tighter financial conditions could trigger debt distress in emerging economies like Pakistan's. So, will this time be different? And what is it about those in power in Pakistan that the country keeps finding itself in dire need of cash, or getting by as a so-called rentier state that's reliant on money from foreign powers, leveraging it for its geopolitical real estate, ties to Afghanistan in particular. All the while, Pakistan's neighbor and rival India has had such a different story since the 1947 partition. 75 years after kicking out its British colonizers, India has overtaken the United Kingdom's spot with the world's fifth largest GDP, and remains a relative bright spot for growth in a gloomy global economy. We'll get to Waj's conversation that asks all those questions and more, but first, he's joining me here in the studio, and now, Waj, I'm used to being on the other side of the seat here and not in the host chair, but I'll do my best. So, what is going on in Pakistan? They're, they're close to defaulting on their debts, comparisons are being made to Sri Lanka, S&P just cut Pakistan's credit outlook to negative. How bad are things at the moment? Well, Jack, now you know how it feels. Uh, Thanks for hosting and thanks for letting me go out and report this week. But this is effectively uh, the perfect storm. Uh, There are three crises at play in one of the world's most unstable countries. There's an economic crisis, uh, which is at multiple levels. Uh, There is a current account deficit, which Pakistan cannot withhold. Uh, It's running out of foreign reserves. It's got less than one and a half months of 
import bills it can pay. Uh, inflation is the highest in Asia. Its stock markets are the worst in Asia. Its uh, rupee uh, has is at an all-time low. The last time it dropped in so much value, just lost 9% last week. The last time wow. it dropped in so much value was 1998 when it tested nuclear weapons and lost investor confidence, which never came back. This is the pits. Uh, that's just the economy. Then there's the political problem with the uh, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who was once an ally of the generals, now is an enemy of the generals, um, and the generals themselves, who for once are confounded uh, by this monster that they've created. Khan is converting anger uh, and protests uh, into votes. Uh, he's gaining ground, and uh, the government which replaced him, which is military-backed, uh, doesn't have much credibility, doesn't have much legs, doesn't have much political capital. And then there's the security problem. Uh, there's Afghanistan right next door, which is still unstable. Uh, but Pakistan, mind you, has been fighting um, the uh, uh, two uh, sorts of insurgencies. It's been fighting an Islamist insurgency in the Pakistani Taliban, which is associated broadly with the Afghan Taliban. But it's also fighting a separatist insurgency in a very important province where it's so-called Iron Brother, all-weather best friend China, has billions invested in Balochistan. So there's an existential problem really here with these three crises. It's a, this is the pits. This is about as bad as it's been in my 20 or so odd years of reporting on the country. So let's talk about what they're doing to try and address this problem. Now, you said the clock is ticking economically on their debt. You just published a big scoop for our site about Pakistan's latest move in the attempt to get some debt relief. What's going on here? Tell us about it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's uh, that story's on our on our site, and that story was reported from uh, between New York and Washington. But its impact is being felt all across South Asia. It's basically uh, it indicates how bad things are. It's usually not the job of a military general of a military chief to negotiate. Uh, with uh, international diplomats and international financiers. But in Pakistan's case, nothing is normal right now. And that's my story, that the country's most powerful man, de facto most powerful man, uh, the army chief, General Kamar Javed Bajwa, uh, who is a bit of a backroom politician himself. He was supposed to retire three years ago. He never did. And then he pretty much uh, got rid of the guy who did uh, give him that extension. Now that he's firmly in place with weak Democrats all around him, um, He's also uh, paying for his keep, so to say. So he's paying for his keep, and he's desperately making calls uh, to his friends in Washington. Now, keep in mind that it's pretty complicated for a Pakistani general to get an audience uh, in Washington right now. The Pakistan army is considered as a friend or an ally of the Taliban. The Taliban gave the Americans a pretty bloody nose for two decades straight. Pakistan has lost a lot of credibility and a lot of friends in Washington. Washington is also pretty skeptical about Pakistan's uh, increasingly tight embrace of China. Uh, there's uh, a, My story got a lot of pushback in Washington where a lot of uh, folks, a lot of conservative uh, readers said, well, maybe Pakistan should go back to its friend in Beijing and not come to us at, its time, at, our, at a time of need. But effectively, the story is about how the Pakistanis are... I hate saying this, but on their hands and knees, trying to get an early disbursement of an IMF tranche, which is desperately needed for them to make their near-term uh, um, arrangements as far as uh, loan and debt servicing is concerned. If they don't make that, I explain in the story, then um, other friends like the Saudis and the Chinese won't come to the rescue. And by the end of August, uh, 
the country may default, which brings us to the default question. Speaking of default, Sri Lanka has grabbed a lot of headlines lately. Mm-hmm. A lot of comparisons are being made. I see you shaking your head. Maybe it's a bit of a lazy comparison. What's 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 fact? What's fiction there in terms of the two? I mean, they are neighbors, but they're very different economies. There's very different populations. But uh, the the main difference is that the stakes are higher. Pakistan defaulting the world will notice. Sri Lanka defaulting, the, the region will notice and has noticed. But the world will, will be imp- impacted by this, Jack. Pakistan has borders with uh, India, China, Iran, Afghanistan. Pakistan sits on the mouth of the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. Pakistan is fighting two separate insurgencies. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Pakistan has 220 million people, most of them young. If Pakistan defaults, different things happen on a very different scale. Now, the Pakistanis, especially generals like General Bajwa, who's, who's in my story, they have for years, for decades, made a case especially in Washington, which Washington has been naive enough to to accept, uh, more or less, or historically, that Pakistan is too big to fail. Pakistan cannot be allowed to fail. And that has encouraged people in different global capitals to play along with Pakistan's rentier state attitude. Pakistan has been lazy about developing its own capacity, lazy about developing its own exports, lazy about developing its own human resources, lazy about developing its own capital. But because, well, friends in Europe, especially friends in America, keep on bailing it out because of this too big to fail argument. But it finally seems that, and this is in our upcoming interview as well, it finally seems that the Pakistanis don't have much to sell on that bit. And people aren't buying that narrative because Afghanistan's sorted. Iran is under negotiations. Nobody wants to fight India. The Cold War is over. China and the U.S. are talking as well. So you, you can't really play that, that old Cold War game. So in a way, Pakistan hasn't really updated its software. Pakistan hasn't updated its playbook. And that is where the too-big-to-fail argument fails um, and falls on its head. And that is also why the, the default becomes a scarier, more realistic option, which takes us into what could happen if there is a default. And that's what my interview is about. Those are the stakes. Wash Khan, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Jack, I'm hoping that you're enjoying this hosting. In fact, I know I'm traveling next month as well. And I'm looking forward to hearing more from you from the, from the anchor seat. I just hope people don't get sick of me. Thanks. I encourage everyone to head to Nika Asia to read the full story. But without further ado, here is Waj's conversation with Aparna Pandey and Uzair Yunus with more. I'm joined by two highly respected Pakistan washers in Washington. Aparna Pandey is research fellow and the director of the Hudson Institute's initiative, on the future of India and South Asia. She's been studying Pakistan for quite a while. Her PhD uh, at uh, Boston University was on Pakistan's foreign policy. And since then, she's authored two books on the country, the last one being the Handbook of Contemporary Pakistan by Rutledge. And then there's Uzair Yunus, who is a regular uh, at Asia Stream. He's the director of the Pakistan Initiative at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center. He's also uh, the manager for engagement and strategy at the Hamiri, an innovation firm, and is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Pakistanomy podcast, and of course, a contributor to Nikkei Asia. Uh, Aparna and Uzair, both in Washington, welcome to Asia Stream. Thank you. Thank you. Aparna, you've just written this piece. Uh, you wrote it for GIS. It's titled, Crisis and Instability Threaten Pakistan's Economy 
yet again. For me, the, the most important, the operative bits were yet again. You say that former Prime Minister Imran Khan refuses to go away quietly. Then you say that subsidies, unskilled labor, and dependence on textile exports continue to weaken the economy. And then you make the big assertion that the threat remains of political intervention by the military intelligence community. That's a lot to chew on, Aparna. But um, please tell us, by starting us off, what do you think is the most serious problem out of those three? I would say the most serious is Pakistan's economic crisis. Uh, the country has had an economic crisis for decades. It goes through these cycles. Um, all three of us on this call have witnessed it. Um, and time and again, Pakistan has managed to come out of that crisis because of uh, sort of either an IMF loan or support from a friendly country, um, sort of very often in the Middle East, sometimes United States. But this time it has a multiple of crises. It has a economic crisis which doesn't seem to go away and international monetary fund which is taking a very long time to actually sort of sort of you know provide the loans or sort of provide the next tranche of the loan um, friendly countries who are not too keen to add to the 10 billion they've already provided in the last four years a united states which is waiting and watching without really getting involved in pakistan um, a domestic political crisis which continues with the former prime minister refusing to back off and the current government which has been in power for a few months being unable to sort of you know really get its hands and sort of stabilize the situation a supreme court or a judicial establishment which continues to intervene and interfere as that wild card to suddenly change the uh, change the deck not just the cards on the deck and finally, a military establishment, which is trying to stay neutral, but keeps having to intervene, even though it's been badly bruised by all that's happened. Well, lots of strands to pull there. But uh, let's start uh, with the economic strand. Um, uh, Uzair Yunus, you've been, um, you've been saying things are bad, but it seems that Pakistan is closer to default today than ever. Why have you been calling this and why are we closer to default in Pakistan? And why haven't the powers that be uh, been noticing voices like yours? I fully agree with what Aparna was saying. And I'll add to this that the biggest sort of problem in Pakistan are its own elites um, who have thrived and, uh, you know, abused uh, their ability to extract geopolitical rents. And what the problem now for Pakistan is that there are no rent providers in the market at this point in time. Um, so as Dr. Pandey said, that the IMF has been sort of very slow with, with uh, un, uh, providing that new tranche of money, which is a billion, $1.2 billion. Um, but even after that, there's a $4 billion um, gap. Um, but that's not everything. Um, through 2026, and these are IMF numbers, Pakistan's gross financing needs stand at a whopping $152 billion. That's with a B. Um, so even if you get the three to four billion needed immediately to over default, um, the larger problem remains. Um, and the problem remains because Pakistan's elites across the board, whether it's its industrial elite, whether it's the business families, whether it's the military establishment or the politicians, uh, refuse to accept the reality, which is they need to structurally reform this economy. It hasn't seen reform for the last three to four decades. Um, and that's what the crisis is all about. So long as they continue to ignore the fact that this economy cannot sustain itself anymore the way it's currently structured, 
um, this crisis will continue to metastasize and mutate and become far more dangerous than what it is today. I'm going to take one of those strands now and give it back uh, to Aparna. I know this was listed in her article. Aparna, you mentioned that Pakistan's been bailed out 22 times since 1958. Uh, making it one of the most bailed out countries on the IMF's books. It's an astounding number. But you also mentioned that Pakistan has a habit, it's not a very good habit, of getting a, uh, the first couple of those tranches, whatever they may be, a billion or two or chunk, you know, chump change for the IMF, but enough to keep Pakistan afloat. And then instead of making the hard decisions, uh, government after government, over the last several years, in fact, decades, goes back to its bad habits. And then when those become untenable, it goes back uh, to the IMF and continues to borrow to keep up with its other debts. Um, explain that to us. Why is this a systemic flaw? It's not that Imran Khan or Shabash Sharif or uh, the Zardari regime or the previous Sharif regime can be blamed for this. This has been going on in one form or the other for decades. Um, why has Pakistan developed this particular habit? Um, I'll draw on something Uzair said, which is that Pakistan has primarily been a rentier state, mm. a state which has been dependent on money being given to it for its location, whether it's the West or whether it's China or whether it's the Middle Eastern countries. But this belief that Pakistan can be uh, sort of Pakistan's geostrategic location will compel other countries to give Pakistan billions of dollars. The problem with that is that you don't build your economy. Now to build your economy, you need to get out of a certain sort of mindset, which is that, which is how the Pakistani state views itself. Um, there's an anti-India uh, sort of, you know, a belief that India is an existential sort of, you know, threat to Pakistan. And therefore, Pakistan needs to build its military, build its security, uh, have the nuclear weapons and also sort of have a form of subconventional warfare or jihad. What that does is that you are not focusing on human capital. You're not focusing on educating the children or sort of Pakistani populace. You are not focusing on building industry, services sector, reforming agriculture. All you're focused on is getting money because that's an easier way. So tax to GDP is really low. Human capital, no investment. And so you have to go back time and again to a, to a multilateral institution for money. But every time the multilateral institution gives you a loan, they demand that you then follow through on their guidelines, which are raise the tax to GDP, reduce your subsidies. But that you don't want to do either for populist reasons or because then in the end, you will have to account also for that massive defense budget you have which will prevent you from your regional foreign policy goals. So it's a vicious cycle, which it's difficult for any Pakistani government to get out of. So it's a vicious cycle, which is very difficult to get out of till the state decides to change its narrative about Pakistan and Pakistan's relations with its neighbors. Right, right. Okay, now uh, pulling uh, forward from there, um, the state, a magical word in Pakistan if you study it. And I'm going to, I'm confounded by uh, how uh, my friend Uzair Yunus has broken it down uh, into four important groups. The business families, uh, the military, uh, the industrial elite, 
um, and the political elite. Uzair, you blamed these four parties, um, these four groups of the elites, for the situation that Pakistan finds itself in. Lots of comparisons going around right now between Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Uh, as a as a, uh, a very simple layman, uh, it seems that the, the the political dynasties which have ruled Sri Lanka are pretty much uh, 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 responsible for most of the last three or four years uh, of the crisis in the making over there. But do you see any particular group in Pakistan, one of those four groups, which deserves most of the blame, which should burden most of this responsibility? Um, or is it equitable? I think it's more or less um, equitable in my view because they've all played off of each other over the years. So they've had these alliances that shift and change over time. So I'll give you an example, right? Um, in the Imran Khan government, um, the real estate lobby was very happy with him. Why? Because he gave the longest ever real estate amnesty scheme, which is basically allowing people with illicit wealth to pump money into the real estate sector to legalize their wealth, essentially. Um, so they loved him. So Imran Khan, a leader whose narrative was anti-corruption, was actually rewarding people for being corrupt and allowing them to create and whiten their wealth, essentially. So they loved him. In the military era, you've had um, investors who profited off of privatization of assets that happened. So they loved Musharraf, for example, the last dictator Pakistan have had. Today, even if you go and talk to Pakistanis, they recall fondly upper class Pakistanis um, the Musharraf era. They said it was the best of time, so to speak. They forget what happened as a result of it. Um, so I think they're equally to blame. And I think one thing that in the international community that's changed, and I think that Pakistani elites have sort of failed to, if I were to use the Pakistani term for it, update their own software, um, is the US-China rivalry. 30% of Pakistan's external debt is owed to China today, close to 30%. Um, and so multilateral institutions, in particular the IMF and the World Bank, um, are going to demand tougher and tougher terms because they don't want to be seen as enabling countries and elites binging on Chinese debt and then coming to the West for a bailout. And I think we've seen that play out in Sri Lanka. We're seeing this in part play out in Pakistan because Uncle Sam is not calling the IMF to go easy on Pakistan. And I think that is a lesson that Pakistan's elites should learn is that there again, the, the geopolitical rents they've extracted are going to be harder and harder to come by because the world has fundamentally changed. And at this point in time, no one is looking to enable um, the geopolitical rent-seeking habits of the Pakistanis, especially because they don't see what they get out of it, even from a geopolitical point of view, which includes the Chinese at this point. Now, when you say the world has changed, one doesn't really need to go far um, from the Pakistani perspective. India has changed. Uh, just last month, very quietly, India became a $3.3 trillion economy. Um, overtaking its colonial master, Great Britain, as the fifth largest economy in the world uh, for, I thought was quite sweet revenge. Uh, the Brits ruled India for over 200 years and the Indians took 75 years to beat the Brits at their own game. And the fact that the Indian uh, uh, State Bank, uh, the Reserve Bank of India, just announced it very quietly, without any hoopla, um, no ribbon cutting, uh, no fireworks, just said it, and um, it went under the radar. For, for those of us who watch India, it was quite a moment. Aparna, 
zoom out for us. Tell us um, that in these 75 years uh, of the history of the subcontinent since independence, how has uh, India versus Pakistan economically, uh, I know it's a long, it's, a, it's, a, it's probably a very long answer, but give it to us in a nutshell. Tell us where the Indians took off and the Pakistanis fell flat. What's the difference? I'd say in the initial decades, actually, uh, Pakistan's economy was doing much better. In the 1950s and 60s, Pakistan used to be praised as the country whose economy is doing better. And I think the reason was that India's economy was growing around 2.5-3% only. The difference is what India did in the initial decades was invest in uh, human capital. It invested in its universities. India asked for and sought economic aid and assistance but that was to build universities for agriculture, to build, you know, technology, whether the Soviets or others, to build its industrial base, defense and civilian. Um, and that is what helped India when India finally liberalized in the 1990s and India's economy started booming um, and, and sort of corporations invested. The difference was you had a country which still, I believe, hasn't reached its potential. India is way behind where it should be. But at least there was investment in people and investment in, in sort of in technology, investment in indigenous industries. Pakistan, unfortunately, took the route of the rentier state and took the route of not seeking investment in human capital, in education, in, you know, for example, the green revolution, which India went through was because India asked for high yielding varieties of seeds in the 60s, 70s. Uh, the milk revolution or the white revolution, as we call it, that India went through. Cooperatives, there are a lot of areas where India invested. So that sort of, and that's what we see today. Pakistan, unfortunately, did not do all that because the money that was sought was sought for either the elite or for the military and the intelligence or for fighting the regional wars, which is in Afghanistan, in India, and sort of basically just helping the state pay off its balances rather than actually investing. That's the main difference. Uh, have you invested in the, the substructure which will then enable the rest of the economy to grow? Have you invested in your people or has the elite simply sort of, uh, sort of uh, you know, stored all that money and has the deep state just retained that money to fight wars or potential imagined wars? Zerv, uh, first of all, uh, do you agree uh, with Aparna? And secondly, do you think that the the deep state, as uh, she called it, which, by the way, for uh, the uninitiated listener, usually means the Pakistani military and its um, intelligence apparatus um, and everybody else who's associated with them. Um, Uzair, do you think the deep state has learned its lesson um, here? And do you think it's turned a corner considering that the, um, uh, the accounting book uh, is, hasn't looked this checkered in 75 years? I would just add two things to, to what Aparna just said. Um, and I agree with, with what she was describing. The one key thing India also did was embark on very early on in its history, um, robust land reforms. Pakistan never had those, uh, which meant that the, 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 the sort of broader economy remained captured by these well, well-heeled landowning elite, which continues to be the case. 
Um, and you see that reflected in Pakistan and India's political makeup, where if you look at the Lok Sabha in Delhi and compare it with the Pakistan National Assembly, um, you will find a lot more diversity in terms of class-based representation um, in the Indian parliament versus Pakistan's parliament, which is a reflection of that failure. I think the second thing uh, that also uh, Pakistanis did not do, which Indian elites did, was that they actually uh, said never again. So when India had to, you know, put down its gold as collateral to bail itself out, its elite decided, and it was part of the debate at that time, that we will never uh, suffer this humiliation again. Um, and Pakistan, as we've talked, has gone dozens of times to the IMF and doesn't really learn its lesson. So I think that's uh, that's something to be added there. On, on the other question in terms of um, has the deep state learned its lesson? I don't think so. I think um, they have con consistently shown through 2017 onwards even um, that they do not have a long-term perspective on things. So for example, in 2017, if they had let Nawaz Sharif continue... Uh, just for reference, Nawaz Sharif is the former Pakistani prime minister uh, who was, um, well, to put it simply, kicked out after the Panama Leaks trials, which were pushed um, in one way or the other by the uh, military intelligence apparatus. Yes. And so when if he was allowed and his party was allowed to rule in 2018, the economic crisis would have basically brought an end to their politics as we know it. Instead, they were turned into he was turned into a martyr along with his daughter, who was also disqualified. And now in April 2022, former Prime Minister Imran Khan was removed in a vote of no confidence, completely constitutional, but we know what the shenanigans were going on in the in the back doors. Um, but that economic crisis that he was creating himself would have ended his political future. But now he's rallying and he's coming back and likely to come back as prime minister when and if elections are held. Um, so I think, again, we see this inability of Pakistan's military to learn from 70 plus years of intervention um, and realize that just allowing the process to continue itself will sort of filter out the haves and the haves nots in, in Pakistan's political system. But this constant desire to intervene and pick winners and losers, much like this controlled rentier economy, this controlled rentier political system uh, leads to a lot of market distortion in the battle for ideas, which means that people with bad and terrible ideas and terrible governance records come back because the public sees them as martyrs, as being hard done by by an establishment or a deep state that conspires to remove them time and time again. That is that is pretty that is a stinging stinging analysis of uh, the Pakistani army, um, Uzair. Um, Aparna, please explain to us how this is not a regular army, um, especially from your perspective of studying them, uh, from your perspective of being an Indian, from your perspective of being a scholar. Uh, who are these guys and why are these guys? And according to our friend Uzair here, why aren't they learning their lessons? Um, thank you, Jahat. Actually, I'll go back in history right to Pakistan's independence and I'll quote somebody both of you know, um, who's written a book on Pakistan, Ambassador Hossein Haqqani, and he sort of lays out that at independence, uh, when the British Indian Army was divided, India received sort of, you know, two-thirds of the army, but Pakistan, a country which was much smaller than India in size, received one-third of that army. So received one-third of British India's army, 17% of British India's population, and 20% of British India's resources. 
so basically the army got very little money not that much of a population but it was a huge entity and let's remember it was primarily the army the air force and the navy weren't really sort of that large at that time in 47 and that's what then leads to the rentier state that's what then leads to an army establishment which needs money which needs to control and decide pakistan's foreign and domestic politics so the pakistani army or the pakistani military intelligence has never learned to live within its means and in order to ensure that it has what it believes it should it has continued to raise the rhetoric of both domestic and foreign threats so domestic threats are uh, those individuals who ask for a reduced role of the army politicians who don't listen to the army um and therefore they are anti-national or traitors and therefore they are either removed through coups or through judicial involvements and foreign threats are the the need to get back kashmir uh the need to ensure that you have sort of some form of control over afghanistan and um sort of you know to stand up to india's nefarious intentions and all of this means that the army needs a lot of money the army needs a lot of resources and so it basically lives off the country so you're starting off with sort of you know instead of reducing the re- the amount of money you have or reducing what you need it for or maybe cutting down your threats or better still improving relations with india improving relations sort of you know cutting down on what you're doing in afghanistan and becoming a trading state and you will have the money to to deal with everything you need but that is it has never been an option for the military establishment i agree with ozair that the military establishment refuses to change its view and its perspective and its narrative ozair yunus surely it's not just the pakistani army which has to be blamed here right i mean they've experimented with all sorts of uh, uh intelligent men uh usually men unfortunately not enough women um in the pakistani financial apparatus but uh um some very smart men have been called in from washington from boston from harvard from the imf from the world bank uh to fix things and um they haven't been fixed why why have they been unable to resolve i think it's for two key reasons one is that the beneficiaries of the status quo in pakistan are the ones still making decisions and my question always has been what's the incentive for the beneficiaries of the status quo to change the status quo itself as 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 dangerous as it may be for the ordinary citizen uh, elite pakistanis keep getting richer as the dollar depreciates because their assets are hedged in dollars so there's no incentive for that the second problem again is i'll go back to my first point that i made in this podcast that pakistan's elites um thrive under these chaotic cycles um which then means that things like pushing through tax reforms aparna raised this point that tax to gdp ratio is really low well one way to solve this is to have a real estate tax well you're not going to get a real estate tax in part because of the fact that the military is a big player in real estate and if you start saying hey all those plots of land that you get will command a higher tax rate 
um, well, there's going to be a risk of an intervention. Um, forget about other elites that would also be up in arms about this, right? So all of those reasons mean that as smart as the advice might be, um, the people responsible for executing on that advice uh, would be the first losers of acting on that advice in the near term. In the long term, you could argue the economy would thrive, it would do much better by trading with the world, etc. But in the near term, they're like, hey, if I'm going to lose money, uh, why should I ever do this? Because it's not it's not good for my bottom line. Right. Okay. Last questions, last inputs for everyone. Uh, your final thoughts, but Aparna, with a theoretical assumption here. Aparna Pandey, if you were given the opportunity to write to the most powerful man uh, in Pakistan, General Kamar Bajwa today, the chief of the army, um, what would you advise him uh, from your desk at the Hudson Institute in Washington? What would you say? Three things. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but let's say I, I am able to send it to General Bajwa. I would say three things. One, um, reopen trade as he had tried to do last year with India. Um, unless Pakistan trades with its biggest neighbor, uh, it's not going to be able to move beyond sort of thinking about Kashmir, thinking about conflict, thinking about existential crisis. So one, at least reopen trade with India, which will lead to more than just tomatoes and chilies and things like that, but it can expand to much more. It will also give uh, opportunities to, to, for investment in Pakistan by Indian companies. Uh, it will benefit Pakistan's economy a lot more, and that's important. Second, um, sort of, you know, um, move beyond or sort of reduce uh, in some ways your dependence on the proxy groups. And, and tied to that is the fact that uh, Afghanistan has basically become like dead lead for Pakistan. Um, the Afghan economy is not getting any, any money, it's not getting any resources, but Pakistan has to carry not just the 210 million Pakistanis, but the millions of Afghans as well. If it wants to prevent a sort of, you know, a deepening humanitarian and worsening crisis in, pa in Afghanistan. So sort of, you know, sort of moving away from supporting proxy groups will at some level also reduce the burden of Afghanistan, which falls on Pakistan's shoulders and by default on General Bajwa's shoulders. And third, and I think this will be the toughest, I would say, stop interfering. Let the cards fall where they are. Because every time the Pakistani army intervenes, it never gets what it wants, but it, you know, like the butterfly effect sort of something happens and sort of it just keeps repeating the same mistakes again and again and again. There will never be a, a messiah who can resolve any country's problems. There will never be that perfect person whom the Pakistani army is looking for. But the person, person does not exist. They should just let things happen and only focus on what their primary duty is, defending Pakistan's external borders. And uh, was there slightly different... Uh theoretical framework for you. Um, if I made you the, uh, the, the chief research officer of the biggest hedge fund in the world, and you were sending your weekly newsletter out uh, to all of your clients, uh, what are the three things uh, you would advise them about Pakistan's um, climate today as an investor? So before I do that, I'll add to Aparna's point one more thing. Advice to General Bajwa: Just retire in November. Oh, you it's, do like that? You you prefer the you prefer the Bajwa letter question, yeah. huh? <laughs> so uh, my, my I would add on a PS note, and because uh, uh, Aparna and I know 
each other really well she may allow me a ps oh, you're allowed my a advice PS. would be retire on time don't seek another extension it's been disastrous for the country um so it's time for you to move on to your question on on investment and and the climate um i think pakistan is going to come out of this crisis um you know as, as painful as as that might be um sooner rather than later i don't think it's going to a default is imminent i think the political elites may continue to sleepwalk their way into that crisis i hope they realize what they're doing and that they're flirting with real danger but for the international investment community what i would add is that once this crisis is over um assets prices in pakistan are going to be really cheap um the rupee is depreciated a lot it's lost a lot of value which means that hard assets which always were um you know because pakistan has a history of keeping an overvalued currency um it would always be unattractive for international investors because the currency was expensive so now asset prices are actually going to be much much weaker uh, which means that there will be upside opportunities on offer um i think the two big areas where there is potential um to invest and grow um provided pakistan's policy makers get their act together is number one in agriculture pakistan is ripe for investment there in terms of modernization but it requires some basic reforms on the pakistani side key among them contractual reform and and judicial reform to enforce contracts and enforce property rights it's a big stumbling block in the economy um and then the second big sector is technology where again because of global liquidity crunch right now things are not looking that great but pakistan is a young place its engineers are world class and again because of the currency depreciation um their rates are a lot more attractive and will be a lot more attractive in the foreseeable future um so i think those two areas are big opportunities and the third which is mainly on the pakistani side is that again because the world is changing global supply chains are moving out of china if pakistan can do the bare bones reforms that are needed that india began in the 90s um it can very quickly find that uh, global supply chains may want to switch to pakistan and investor as well but that requires some harder reform work on pakistan which in a political crisis is easier said than done some light at the end of that tunnel uh, pakistan is in ozair uh, yunus of the atlantic council thank you aparna pandey of the hudson institute thank you for joining asia stream with your thoughts thank you thank you thanks waj we go now to alice french our deputy big story editor for this week's tokyo dispatch which is on the chip making resilience myth In the latest installment of Nika Asia's coverage of the chip crunch, our reporters in Taiwan, Annie Ting Feng and Lolly Lee explored why onshoring the incredibly complex process of microchip production is so difficult. Here's Alice to tell us more. Konnichiwa and welcome to the Tokyo Dispatch, where I send regular updates from the narrow streets and neon lights of Tokyo, home to Nikkei HQ and hub for our East Asia coverage. This week's big story was on resilience in the chip making industry and came from our team in Taiwan, Annie Chengting Fang and Lolly Li, who interviewed more than 2 dozen senior industry executives across the world's major chip economies: Japan, the US, Taiwan, and the EU. Their reporting revealed just how complicated the microchip production process is. Making one chip requires hundreds of components and chemicals and a multitude of complex processes. As the chip industry currently stands, each of these production processes are overseen by various companies in various countries. But the increasing unpredictability of the supply chain, fueled by pandemic restrictions, climate change, 
and the Russia-Ukraine war is driving many industry players to seek to onshore their chip production in order to become more self-sufficient and ideally shorten lead times for chip components, ultimately getting electronics into consumers' hands more quickly. As this story reveals, however, the chip production process comes with too many twists and turns to consider onshoring as anything more than a pipe dream. I caught up with Annie and Lawley to find out why. So Annie, come to realise the importance of resilience in the post-COVID world, but why does it remain a myth in the context of chip making? Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I think there is a huge campaign going on from many major economies, from the US, Japan, EU to China and India. They are all rolling out billion dollars of subsidies to onshore chip production. And they are aiming one thing and one thing only to build a resilient semiconductor supply chain in their own country. However, is that realistic? After we spoke to more than 25 senior executives in chip making industries, we find that such a call to onshore and rebuild a fully self-reliant chip supply chain could take several decades and not realistic given how complicated and interconnected all the supply chain is. I see. So as you say, the chip making process is really, really complex. Could you give us an example of a chip making component that we might not expect to be important, but is in fact crucial? And why are the lead times on these seemingly trivial components so long right now? Last year, if you still remember, there was a severe chip shortage that hit a swamp of industries, including cars, computer, and smartphones. But this year, that unprecedented supply chain crunch has extended to supply chain of chip itself. Actually, one choking point could be something you may never think of, such as valves, tubes, containers, and pipes made of special plastics called fluoropolymers. Those tiny tubes and valves and containers are actually extremely critical to handle any chemicals that are essential to build any chips. Those fluoropolymers are actually processed from fluorospa. That is a kind of mineral. China is the dominant player in fluorospa and controls nearly 60% of the production globally. This example shows the inconvenient truth that the raw materials could actually be center production in some places such as China or Russia that some Western nations like the US want to decouple from. Thanks so much, Annie. And, and as you say, it's really quite mind boggling just how interconnected the whole chip making process is. Now, I want to come to you now, Lolly. And as yes. Annie has previously explained, several countries are now trying to onshore their chip production and become more self-sufficient. What kind of plans do they have in place for supporting domestic chip making? Right. Actually, governments worldwide have so far promised to pour more than 100 billion US dollars into subsidizing to rebuild a local chip supply chain. In the US, actually, they are set to move forward their 52 billion subsidy um, chip acts into legislation this week. And the EU has already adopted uh, 45 billion euros, the European Chips Act. 
Japan also budgeted 600 billion yen, and also India is set to uh, is set up a 30 billion funding program just to bring the semiconductors and other chip sectors back home. But luring semiconductor supply chain back home isn't an easy task because behind the, the supply chain it sits a massive network that's supplying equipments and other items. It involves hundreds of raw materials, chemicals, consumable parts, gases, metals, and without any of them, the chip making could not function. So rebuild a semiconductor supply chain is not just about pouring billions of dollars of money. It, it also requires a very long time and dedicated suppliers around the world to jointly build this supply chain. But we won't see the outcome very soon in just three to five years. Those were our tech correspondents, Annie and Lawley, speaking from Taipei. It certainly sounds like, as the title of their big story suggests, resilience in the chip supply chain remains a myth. It will be interesting to see how the world's major chip economies attempt to remedy this in the coming months, as the Ukraine war drags on and inflation continues. Be sure to check the Nikkei Asia website for any updates. And this has been Alice French with the Tokyo Dispatch for Asia Stream. Matane! That's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for more in depth coverage of Pakistan, semiconductors, and all things related to Asia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave us a review, and hopefully a five star rating. And a last reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. To get the discount, click the link in the episode description. This episode was produced by Monica Hunter-Hart, Waj Han, and myself. I'm your host, Jack Stone Truitt. We'll stream again in two weeks, and we'll be wishing you sweet streams until then.